Section 7 of The Influence of Monarchs by Frederick Adams Woods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 7. Portugal. The history of Portugal has ever been given the attention it deserves. Not only is a period of discovery and conquest an almost continuous epoch of expansion replete with dramatic interest, by the long decay which this country underwent throws the second half of its history in vivid contrast to the earlier. Thus a splendid problem is presented in the field of historical causation. The Portuguese were the pioneers in modern geographical exploration. They prepared the way for the discovery of America by systematically pushing forward the art of navigation and penetrating the limbo of the South Atlantic, the Sea of Darkness of the Ancients. They were the first to open up the sea route to India. They were the initiators of the permanent colonial policy of Europe and the first to shoulder the treasure that comes with the white man's burden. Lisbon was the city of all capitals of Europe for life, adventure, intrigue and profit for one generation of men. And the king of Portugal, Emmanuel the Fortunate, the richest and most influential monarch in the world. The rise and fall of Portugal follow very closely the personnel of the monarchs. No more so than most nations, but more noticeably so than some, because here nearly all the early monarchs were strong, while all the latter were mediocre or weak. Indeed, it was while investigating the history of ancient Portugal that I first hit upon the idea of monarchical influence, and that it might, on account of its evident importance, be made a first or a central force in historical measurement. The account which I have already published, chapter 12 of a hereditary and royalty, need not be essentially altered, though a more extended reading has shown three or four estimates that require readjustment. The history of Portugal has been studied by so few people in England, America, France and Germany that it is not possible to get adequate information except by going also to the Portuguese writers themselves. Not that the easily obtained information is so faulty, but it leaves much to be desired because it is so meagre. I have personally collected some 1,200 books and pamphlets, mostly in Portuguese, dealing with the heroic period, and have gained some insight into the value of the sources. It seems to me that one's opinion and judgments change more and more on minute, and less and less on essentials as one studies extent from the usual towards the unusual, from the encyclopedias towards the ems. The minute seem more and more as if they were essentials, but this comes from a narrowing of the field of vision. As soon as one expands that vision again, as indeed one must expand it if a broad problem be the goal, a problem covering several centuries of time, then the details vanish into an insignificant haze. The righteous insistence of historians upon accuracy of detail is thus explained. As they work upon each segment of the historical curve, they demand accuracy for all the points upon the segment an accuracy which is important if taken in terms of the size of segment, that is, in relation to a brief duration of time. On each of the segments they devote the same accurate care. Having devoted so much research to each section of the country's history, they thus grow to generally love each period separately, and will not endure the least tarnish of what they believe the truth. They do not then realise that if they would stand back far enough to see the general form and direction of the curve, the minute would become of very little importance. In the history of Portugal, one runs across a number of old legends now expurgated from the more critical modern accounts. But the remaining facts, or alleged facts if one likes, fit just as well into the theory 
which I am setting forth. Some of the changes and additions which I should wish to make were I rewriting the whole chapter would be the following. Sancho II, 1127 and 1245, was not altogether so weak and lazy, nor was his reign devoid of a progressive side. The reign of Ferdinand, 1367 to 1383, also contained one important element of progress, growth of the mercantile marine, but there was nothing to offset the disruption in the government, decadence in agriculture, and a wretched fiscal policy. Ferdinand himself was lazy, frivolous, and soft, distinctly below the average. On the other hand, I have taken John I too high. John I, the great so-called, was not exactly a genius, rather a man of gifts and judgment. He was undoubtedly aided by circumstances, by a popular movement, by his famous lieutenants, and perhaps chiefly by his own family. The period 1384 to 1433, which marks the beginning of Portugal's participation in the Renaissance, is not much understood. At any rate, it was an era of prosperity, and John I, though probably not deserving the epithet, great, is at least worthy of being graded here as plus. Emmanuel, often called the fortunate, probably deserves much more credit for the direction of events during the culmination of the heroic period than the majority of writers have heretofore given him. The great discoveries were initiated by Prince Henry the Navigator, supported by the regent Don Pedro, and further by John II. So on the ascension of Emmanuel in 1495, the Cape of Good Hope had been routed, and preparation had already been made for the voyage of Vasco de Gama. Portugal's favourable maritime position and the training and seamanship which her people had long enjoyed were undeniably contributory to a great bonanza. But if the fluctuations in the expansion in maritime discovery be considered, the personal influence comes again to the fore. That the systematic explorations under Henry the Navigator were really due to his own initiative and persistent direction is shown by the way exploration languished after his death. Alfonso V, always bent on crusading in Africa, neglected exploration. Only a comparatively small strip of new coastline was discovered between the death of Prince Henry in 1460 and 1481, the close of Alfonso's reign. John II, 1481-1495, took up the work again and geographical knowledge augmented with renewed activity. It is not too much to say that the greatest single series of events in the geographical rearrangement of mankind, the discovery of half the world by the other half, would have been retarded many years had the heroic Portuguese princes, true Vikings in their blood and in their nature, never indeed existed. From 1521 to 1788, not a single strong king fell to the lot of Portugal. Philip II of Spain, first of Portugal, cannot awaken our enthusiasm. The only ruler to claim rank with rulers, surely mentally superior, would be Luisa de Guzman, whose influence lasted from 1640 to 1662. She must be rated very high among princesses, not so high among actual rulers, as her average standard is higher. The only notable progressive period during all these generations of national demoralization was that under the Marquis of Pombal the only man of genius to rise to the needs of the times. The last half of Portugal's history is just about as much as the first half, correlated with the character of her kings. Therefore, there is evidence that the early chroniclers were not so far out of the way after all. End of section 7